All right, so just a quick reminder, if you guys are new with us this morning, um, first of all, we're glad that you're here. Um, but the way we do children's ministry is a little different than maybe what you see at some other churches. We have kids in here with us um, every other Sunday. Then on the opposite Sunday, kindergarten through eighth grade head out there and they have their own Sunday school. Um, a couple of things just to say about that. First of all, I think we, we do that for a reason. I think it's really good for kids to be in here in a worship service, to see mom and dad, to see friends and family worshiping Jesus together um, in song and prayer and in preaching. I think it's good for them to see that and to know what, that, what a biblical church looks like. Um, they don't have to learn that when they're 18 and go looking for a church on their own, maybe when they go off to college. So it's, it's really intentional for kids to be in here on Sunday mornings. At the same time, we want them to be fed and to have kind of a community among themselves. So every other week we send them out. Um, and, and some families choose to keep their kids in here throughout the service as well. The reason why I just want to just draw some attention to this this morning is because um, in, in order for families to, to feel comfortable having their kids in service... Um, we have to be okay with an occasional distraction, all right? Um, we have to create an atmosphere in here where if a kid is having a difficult time, um, it's okay, all right? It, it's okay. And so I just want to remind you and encourage you. Um, there's one, if you wonder, why, you come here on a Sunday morning and you hear me preaching, why is he always so loud? Why is he always yelling, okay? Well, really, it's, that's part of the reason, right? Just so... You can have your attention here, and, and families can do what they have to do with their kids. Okay, it's, it's not the only reason, but that's, that's one of the reasons. So I, I want to continue to applaud you and encourage you because I think you guys do a really good job of, of just having, like last week, for example, we had food going on in here. We had tables in the back, and there was a lot of moving parts throughout the service, and that's okay. That's, that's okay, all right? So I want to encourage you with that. Um, on kind of a similar note, what, the series that we are in over the next couple of weeks, in the last few weeks, we've been, been as a church walking through and considering what does it mean to be a, a member or what does it mean to be an attender of Parkview East. Um, the truth is we don't want to hold anything back, right? We want you to be at a church that you feel like you can grow, you can thrive, you can pursue Jesus together in everyday life with other people around you. We want to be very upfront with what we are about, all right? So that's really been the whole intent and the design of this service, or sorry, of this series. Um, you have maybe noticed as you come into church on Sunday mornings at the welcome table, there is a booklet there that's called our DNA booklet. And if you were to get that, it kind of corresponds with our sermon, sermon series, so you can have some studies um, that, you can, that can kind of guide you throughout the week based on the message. And, and really what we did the first three weeks is we talked about what is the mission, the vision, what, what, what are we doing as a church as we pursue Jesus together. We spoke specifically about the how. How do we do that? And we used kind of three words that start with G. We gather, we grow, and we go. That's our plan for making disciples here at Parkview East. We gather together um, to worship God. We grow in Christ-likeness. We want to grow in maturity. This is a place where we recognize from the very beginning that every single one of us, regardless if you're teaching, regardless if you're, if you're up on stage at any given point or you're in the chairs out here, that every single one of us are human beings who are under construction. Nobody in here is a final product. Right? God is continually at work in our life to transform us and to conform us into his son's image. And this is a place where it's going to be okay to not be okay 
all the time. And the worst thing that you can do to yourself and those around you is, is put on a face like you've got it all together, especially on Sunday mornings where we are so tempted to act like we got it all together. All right? This is a place where it's okay. We can be real with one another. Okay? We want to grow in Christ-likeness. And the last thing we want to really focus on is how do we go? How do we go now and make disciples? So we gather, we grow, and we go. That's the how to making disciples. Now, last week and the next couple of weeks, we focus our attention is specifically on what are the traits, DNA series, what are the specific traits that we should see evident in our lives as followers of Jesus? As we make disciples here at Parkview East, we want to have a picture an idea of what that disciple should look like. And so we've come up with these five traits that really hang language on the picture of a disciple, of a follower of Jesus. Last week we talked about a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ, is somebody who should enjoy God's presence. We talked from Psalm 16, verse 11, right? The idea that in God's presence there's fullness of joy and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So really my hope last week was to be able to say, listen, it's a good thing to be in God's presence. And as a follower of Jesus, we should long, to be in God's presence. The picture of the Garden of Eden where God and man dwelled with peace, right? God's presence was fully manifested. And since then, since the fall, since sin has slipped into the world and corrupted this place, the echoes of Eden are going on in our heart even today. We long for, whether we can put our finger on it or not, Eden echoes in our heart. And as human beings, we long really for God's presence. It's the deepest longing of our life, is to be in God's presence. Now this morning what I want to do is continuing to talk about God's presence, but I want to do so out of John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, I would encourage you to open them up to John chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. If you do not have a copy of God's Word and you would like one, um, there are copies. Craig can come around and just put, you don't even have to move. You can just raise your hand and Craig will put one in your hand, all right? So John chapter 15, verse 1 through 8. All right, this is what it says. It says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my word abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let me pray for our time together in the Word. Father, we um, just come before you this morning, and um, Lord, we thank you for your Word. 
Lord, we thank you that you have given us um, what we need um, to fulfill what you have called us and designed us to fulfill, Lord. And Lord, I pray that this morning a result of um, just examining these words, Lord, would be just steps of further obedience in the lives of your children, Lord. God, I pray that you would send your spirit into this place, that he would show us through these words, your son, that you may be glorified. Lord, take these words now that are eternal and true. And Lord, we ask that you would write them on our hearts. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Um, you know, last week you may have noticed that in my message I mentioned a particular video game, right? And somebody asked me, it sounds like it's pretty personal. Fortnite was the game I mentioned last week if you weren't with us. Um, it sounded like it was kind of personal to my you know, living situation at home. It's, 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 it's not that bad, okay? But I'm going to start off with a video game illustration this morning. And so I don't want you to think that this is like a huge battle that we're just fighting. I mean, it's a battle, don't get me wrong, all right? But I don't want you to think you need to come over after the service and lay hands on our video game or how. I mean, you can. You're more than welcome to. But anyways, so my, my question to you this morning is, some of you perhaps can relate. Some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about. And I would just call you blessed and maybe favored, all right? <laughs> have you ever, it's a simple question, have you ever tried to speak to a child while they are playing a video game? Yes, you have. Okay, okay. Some of you, I see some heads, some giggles. Perhaps you can relate to the particular frustration um, this you know, situation provides. If you have ever spoken to a child while they are playing a video game, or, or maybe, maybe that's not so helpful, maybe it's watching a movie, or, or maybe it's a spouse who's listening or watching a baseball game or a football game, somebody who's really locked in to something, all right? If you've ever spoken a word to somebody, when they're really focused, a kid playing a video game, you would know that the word that you have spoken to them is not always properly received. I'll give you an example. At our house, there are two things that I am continually, and if my kids were in here this morning, they would say yes and amen to this. There are two things I am continually asking of them between myself and my wife. One is, in the last two, two years, has been, can you get me a diaper? All right? It's a phrase. It's a phrase that just you know just rattles off of my lips with the utmost of ease. Can you go get a diaper? And the other phrase that we'll always say is, um, "Can you walk the dog, son? Can you walk the dog?" All right. So those are two things I'm at least a half a dozen times a day asking. I mean, you would think the bar is pretty low, right? <laughs> Give me a diaper. Walk the dog. Not expecting a whole lot, okay? But those two things constantly coming out of my mouth at home. And and if it would, not be, it would not be unheard of if my children are playing a video game, maybe watching a cartoon. This has happened before, okay? Um, if they're locked in, and let's say I say, Emery, can, can you go get Dad a diaper? Now, now Emery's one that's real quick. He'll, he doesn't usually need to be told twice. He will shoot up because he knows if he doesn't that that thing's going to get shut off or whatever, right? He will shoot up real quick, okay? But it would not be unheard of for him to, to, to come by, you know, maybe a minute later. I asked him for a diaper, right? And he's walking down the hallway with the dog on the leash, taking her outside, <laughs> all right? Somewhere in the process, because he's so into the video game, that when he heard Dad ask for a diaper, he knew Dad asked for something, 
It, somehow it got lost in translation, right? You understand what I'm saying? He's walking the dog now, which is, okay, that's fine. Walk the dog and then bring me the diaper. We can work around that, okay? But I think, I think, oftentimes, the exact same thing can happen to us when God speaks to us through his word. We can be guilty of doing the exact same thing with God's word. And my fear, because I've seen it present in my life, and I know it's something that as a people we struggle with, is that we can treat God's word in the exact same fashion. For some of you, maybe if you have been around church very long, perhaps the passage that I just read is a passage that you are familiar with really to any degree. My fear is that we can hear what God says when we read John 15, 1 through 8, but we don't hear what God says when we read these verses. Now, now to be sure, to be absolutely sure, there is a sweetness about these verses. There are some very sweet truths. And I would, again, encourage you just to look in your text. If you look in John 15, 1 through 8, you see some sweet, sweet things, right? That God, the creator of the universe, has made himself accessible to people. We can be in his presence. We can be connected to the vine. It's a sweet, sweet truth. And if we are connected, if his word abides in us, he tells us, ask for me whatever you want and it will be done for you. That's a sweet truth, right? The, the very creator of the universe, the man who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, ask from him whatever you want and he promises it will be done, right? We can find our identity in the greatest the best there is in this world. That's a sweet, sweet truth. But there are certain things in this text this morning that upon landing on your ears, they shouldn't sound quite as sweet. Truth is, there are, there are some things in this text that are rather sobering. There's a sweetness to the text, absolutely. But there is also a sobering truth that makes us, should make us tremble. It really should. It should make us stop and make sure dad asks for a diaper not to take the dog for a walk. Right? Because there is a tremendous amount at stake in these verses. Right? I mean, there is an awesome, we serve an awesome God who's full of grace, full of love, full of peace and of goodness. And there's a part, we should want to be united with him. But when you read the Bible, you also see that the God we serve, the God we come and worship every week is also a God of judgment. He's a God of judgment. He's a God that takes fruit incredibly seriously. The presence or lack thereof of it in your life is a big deal to God. It's a huge deal. 
Guys, this morning, I, I open these words, and my hope is, is that you would taste the sweetness in these words, but you would also recognize the sobering reality that these words portray for us this morning. They are sweet, but they're also sobering. Really this morning, the main goal for me this morning is to be able to show you that what God is after in your life, the very reason why he wants you to be in his presence, the very reason why he wants to have you full of joy in his presence is because apart from his presence, your life lacks fruit. It will be completely void of fruit. Okay? If you don't want to be connected to God, to abide in Him, to be in His presence, there will be no presence of fruit in your life. Okay? If you want to prove to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a child of God, there better be fruit in your life. Okay? And then comes a sobering, sobering warning. If there is not fruit in your life, what does God do with you? Okay? I want us to be able to see, is there fruit in our life? And if we look at our lives and we look at the text, we should be able to find out how does God, what's the process by which God produces this fruit in our life? So really, to one big aim, you should live a fruitful life. All right? Two points this morning. The purpose, I want to show you the purpose behind that and also the process of producing fruit in your life. First off is the purpose. Jesus starts, and these are some of the last words that Jesus, and this is kind of the upper room discourse, some think that maybe by this time in the conversation, right before Jesus is murdered, that he has left the upper room, perhaps maybe walking by a vineyard using a metaphor and illustration that is there that people could identify with. The first words that Jesus utters in this chunk in chapter 15 is, I am the true vine. Right? If you are familiar with Jesus' teachings, you would know that there are seven I am statements that Jesus, especially in the book of John, you could go throughout and look at these different I am statements. Right? Where, where people really get off track is understanding who Jesus is. Most people can agree that he was an important historical figure, to be sure. Right? A lot of people who don't follow him, who wouldn't call him God, can say Jesus was an important dude. Right? Our whole calendar kind of revolves around him. Pretty important guy. All right? But where people get off is exactly who he was. And so the best way to determine who he was was simply to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, who are you? Well, luckily, he left us with plenty of evidence of who he thought, who he claimed himself to be. And you can look at these seven I am statements, and the last of which is the one we see this morning. I am, this is really important, the word true. If you have your own Bible, I would underline it. If you have one of ours, you can underline it too because it's a good word. I am the true Vine. I am the true vine. It's a statement that he starts off uh, in verse chapter 1. It's important to understand the imagery of what is happening here. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he is providing them a metaphor and illustration of who he was simultaneously by telling them who they aren't. This is what I mean. If you were to go throughout the Old Testament, you would see constant references to a vine or to a vineyard. Okay, one place that you could look is Exodus chapter 15. This is one of the first places that we see it in Exodus chapter 15. God had just delivered God's people out of the land of bondage, out of Egypt, 
right? He had delivered them from the very hand of Pharaoh. They had crossed the Red Sea. And then we get the song of Moses, where, where Moses and God's people praise God for who he is. Listen to what it says in verse 17. This is Exodus 15, 17. Hey, Colin, is there any way I could get a bottle of water, maybe? Would you be able to get Sorry. Uh, Exodus 15, verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The idea of of a vine being planted in the ground. This picture is what God intends for the nation of Israel, for God's chosen people, that he would deliver them from the land of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, and that he would plant them in the ground, and that they would be like a vine that would grow. And as this vine, this plant grows, that the rest of the world would look at the fruit that springs off of its branches, and they would get an idea, a picture of the ultimate gardener, God himself. That God's people would be a, a luscious, growing vine that would produce fruit that is good and that gives people, thank you, that gives people a picture of who God is. That's what God's design was for the nation of Israel. Flip over, if you have your Bibles open, flip over to Psalm 80, and you see it there in verse 8. Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. God's design for Israel throughout the Old Testament, the picture he talks about Israel, the metaphor he gives for who these people are going to be, is a vine yielding luscious fruit. Its branches would spread out. It would be good for the rest of the world as its shade would cover, would cover the earth. That's what God's design was for God's people. They would be a vine. This is language that would be familiar to his disciples, first century Jews, as they hear Jesus say, I am the true vine. What he is saying is not just a definitive statement about who he is. He's also saying very clearly who they aren't. Because if you continue reading the biblical story and you're familiar with God's people and the history of Israel, you will see that God's design for them to be a plant that bears luscious fruit actually doesn't happen. The place that we see this probably most clearly is in Isaiah chapter 5. So I drink this, I would encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. This is what it says. Start in verse 4. What more is there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it, look at this verse, verse 4. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? See, the fruit that God had intended for the nation of Israel to produce, good, luscious grapes, instead it produces wild grapes, bad fruit, 
rotten fruit, fruit that you can't eat that is not fulfilling its purpose. And so as a result, if you look throughout the Old Testament, see where God talks about his people as a vineyard, you would see a couple things. One, what his purpose is for them to produce good free fruit. You would see two, their failure to accomplish this purpose. And three, you would see judgment. It's always associated with God's judgment. Look at verse five and six. And now I will tell you what I will do in my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall be pruned and hoed. And priests, sorry, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. In verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, he found bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Right? The point, folks, is that where God had intended Israel to, to be this luscious vine producing good fruit, Israel failed miserably. They failed to produce the fruit. And so, as a result, the judgment of God would come. Every verse that you read about the vine and its purposes, you also see it associated with God's judgment because it could not produce good fruit. So when Jesus steps on the scene and when he says, I am the true vine, what Jesus essentially is saying is where Israel fails, I succeed. If you want to be a people who produce good fruit, it's not dependent on your relationship with the nation of Israel. It's dependent on your relationship to me. It doesn't matter if you're connected to God's people through the nation of Israel. There's judgment that will come there. What matters is how you are connected to me. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. It's so important. Where Israel fails, Jesus does not fail. Jesus is the one ultimately that Israel pointed to. If you enjoy the status of being a part of God's chosen vine, and there's good things that come from that, then you must be properly related, connected to Jesus himself. Now this is good news, right? Because if you were to think about, I mean, even before in God's plan, like specifically, ethnically, a people. Okay, when Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am the true van, vine, it opens up the doors to the nations, right? So you don't have to come in through the nation of Israel, but regardless of where you call home, regardless of the language you speak, regardless of the color of your skin, you can be in God's presence. You can bear good fruit. That was the, the purpose that God had for Israel. Jesus fulfills it. So real quick, if we look at the purpose now of bearing fruit in your life, we see throughout the New Testament, we looked at the Old Testament, what a vine looks like. What about, what about fruit in the New Testament? If, you, if this idea of bearing fruit is so important, Right? If it means the difference between God cultivating life in you or God raking you away and burning you in a heap, right? If the difference is fruit, well, you better know what fruit is. Okay? It should be important to know what fruit is. In Colossians, we see it all throughout the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1, verses 10, Jesus, or sorry, uh, 
Paul speaks of, of bearing fruit that pleases God. We know fruit pleases God. It's what he wants. In Matthew 3, 8, John the Baptist speaks of the true repent, repentance as fruit. In Matthew 7, 16 through 11, Jesus speaks of evidence of spiritual authenticity as fruit. Romans 1, 13, Paul refers to winning converts as fruit. In Romans 6, 22, growth in holiness is talked about as fruit. In Romans 15, 28, monetary offerings, giving sacrificial your, sacrificially your money is get, that's given to meet the needs of others is talked about as fruit. In Galatians 5, 22 through 23, you see the fruit of the Spirit, right? This is Holy Spirit producing Christ-like character in us. It's called fruit. In Colossians 1, 6, spiritual and numeric growth in the church is called fruit. Colossians 1, 10 describes good works as fruit. All throughout the New Testament, you hear all about fruit and what fruit is. And all of those different things give us an idea, a picture of what God means when he says fruit. We know he takes it seriously, right? Matthew 21, 19, there would be a serious word of judgment to the fruitless fig tree, right? We know what happens to the fig tree that doesn't bear any fruit, right? He casts a curse on it. It will provide no more fruit. John 15, 8, we see that the evidence of fruit in your life provides proof of your position in Christ, Fruit is super, super important. And throughout the New Testament, it is consistently referred to as godliness, right? The, the key here is that fruit equals godliness. God didn't call a people to himself because he was lonely, Okay, that's not why he made a people for himself because he was sitting around and he was lonely or, or because because he had even because you have a lot to offer. I remember I know many of us probably think I have a tremendous amount of skills. I got a great reputation. I come from a great background. I got so much to offer God. Well, I'm gonna tell you right now that may be true, but that ain't why he wants you. Okay, that's not why he wants you. The reason why God has called you to himself, the reason why he has given you himself is to bring about fruit in your life. God's purposes, his mission working in your life is to bring about fruit, to conform you into the very image of his eternal son, Jesus Christ. And as we grow in light, image and likeness of Jesus, as we are conformed into his image, God says that is fruit. God's purpose in my life is not ultimately to make me a better pastor or a better preacher. Although, although I know many of you are probably praying for that. All right? All right? Maybe some of you are. But that's not ultimately God's presence in my life, his purpose in my life. His working in your life is not ultimately to make you into a wonderful mother or a wonderful father or the world's greatest grandma or grandpa. His purpose is not to make you the best teacher you can be or the greatest doctor or coach or lawyer or plumber or retiree that you can be. All right? That's not why God ultimately is working in your life. He is not tending and cultivating in your life to bring about prosperity or position or an abundance of possessions. That's not ultimately why he's working. Brothers and sisters, God is working in your life to shape you into his image. That's God's purpose in your life. 
is to shape you into his image. Along the way, he may very well do those other things, right? He may make Craig Welt the world's greatest grandpa, which I think he is on a mission to do, all right, just by seeing how he is. He, he may make some of you the greatest neighbors or employees or students, right? He, he can easily do those things, but ultimately his work, his cultivating work in your life is to make you look like his son. That's his priority in your life. So the question simply becomes, how fruitful are you? How fruitful are you? When you examine Jesus Christ throughout scriptures and you see his character, if you see how he operates with those who don't know him, you see how he operates around those who are different from him, you see how he loves and cares for the sick, you see how he stands on the very word of God and does not move. You see the compassion and the kindness and also the words of truth that he speaks with almost zero fear of what men think. Then the question is, where is the fruit in your life? Do you look like him? Are you growing in your likeness of him? It's the purpose of God's presence in your life. Lastly, I want to talk about the process by which this happens. So far we've seen that God has a plan to have a people who produce food. That's his purpose in your life. How then does this happen? We're told in verse 2 that God clears the vine of any branches that are not yielding fruit. And if you pay attention from really verses 2 through 5, you will see a natural progression the text goes. It goes from no fruit to fruit to more fruit and then to much fruit. Regardless of where we are on this journey with Jesus or maybe where we have come from, God has the same intent in your life. Right? So regardless for how long we have been walking with Jesus, everyone should leave here this morning knowing that God's purposes in your life are simply more fruit. Folks, there's work to be done. Now there are some amazing godly brothers and sisters in this room, right, who've been walking with Jesus for years. And it's hard to imagine them growing and bearing more fruit than they already are. But you know what? That's God's goal. He wants more fruit. So how does he do this? First thing we notice in verse 2, if you would look at it, it would say, every branch that does not bear fruit, God takes away. God takes away. Everything that is not producing fruit, he removes. I don't, again, I'm not an avid horticulturist, right? I do very little work in my lawn, but I know enough to know that if I cut my grass and it's really tall, like lately we've had some, some lawn mowing issues, okay? So the grass has gotten really long, lots of rain, and then I've had to cut it down. And then if that grass stays there and sits on top of the, the new grass, what happens to that grass? It dies. It doesn't produce life anymore. The grass clippings sit there and kill what's underneath. If you are an, a gardener, you know that, that one of the most important things to taking care of your garden is to get rid of the stuff that's not bearing fruit, to hack down the weeds. The picture of a garden with a vine in it, the fruit-bearing vine, if you were to look from a distance, it may appear that the vine is in great shape. Looking outside at this, from outside the garden, looking in at the vine, you may think, oh, everything is working as planned. But as you draw closer to the vine, you would notice there are branches that are no longer connected and they're not producing any fruit. 
So, so Jesus is the vine we are connected to. The picture of God the Father is the man who's walking around the garden. He's the vine dresser. He's the gardener. And he's clearing away that which is lacking to produce fruit. There are two branches here. There's only two branches that are, that are associated with the vine in this metaphor. There is the branch that bears fruit, and there's that which does not bear fruit. And it's very clear. It's very clear what God does when there's no fruit. He eliminates those branches. They're gathered together, they're thrown away, and they're burned. That's what happens. This is an act of God's judgment. It's not a popular topic, to be sure, in churches today, right? But it is an incredibly important topic that needs to sink in to us, okay? The, 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 the process of examining our life for fruit should be something we do every single day. Because look what's at stake. If we are a branch that doesn't bear fruit, look at what happens. The only thing we deserve is God's judgment. He takes away that which doesn't produce fruit. And, and I think in doing so, I mean, a great picture we have of this is Judas in the Bible, right? He's a disciple who, who blended in. We have no indication before he sold Jesus out. We have no indication that he was a man, that the other disciples saw him as a man who wasn't producing fruit in his life. We have no indication of that. So he completely blended in and looked like everybody else, right? Man couldn't distinguish him. God had no problem seeing his heart. Okay, so, so we might be able to play church. We might be able to, to staple fruit on our branch and, and make it look like we are fruit-bearing branches to those around us. But folks, when it comes to deceiving God, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. All right? First thing he does to cultivate more fruit on the vine is eliminate that which doesn't bear any fruit. The second thing we see that he does is that he prunes. This is the other activity that the Father is responsible for. It's found in verse 2, the second half of verse 2. And every branch that, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This is a necessary part of the process for fruit production in our lives. It's pruning. It's cutting back. It's cutting off. That's what's needed for the branch to be healthy and for it to be fruitful. Listen, uh, if you could, sparing you again from my vast horticultural knowledge... What we know about the pruning process is that it's essential for the health of the vine. It's unavoidable, and it hurts. It hurts. It's not pleasant. It's not a pleasant process. And I think one of the worst lies that has, one of the many lies that have drifted into, I think, Western culture, cultural Christianity is the idea that, that the picture of godliness is void of this pruning process. That really what a godly life looks like is somebody who doesn't suffer, who isn't persecuted, who doesn't have to deal with grief or pain or suffering or unbelief. That, that if I can get rid of all those things, then I will emerge as a fruitful person. Well, the Bible, again, the only problem with that theology is the Bible itself. All right? For your life to be fruitful, Jesus says it requires pruning. Now, trust me, I'm the first one to say, I wish it was something else, like a happy dance. You know what I mean? Or a celebration, or a pat on the back. Like, for those of you that are fruitful, 
God would, you would think maybe he would just encourage you along and say, great job, keep up the good work. It should seem a little odd. This goes against conventional wisdom, but not really when you think about the metaphor that what's necessary for, again, what is he trying to produce? You're fruitful. He wants more fruit in your life. So God cuts. He prunes. He pulls it back. And that process hurts. It hurts. It's necessary, though. He wants more fruit in your life. The third thing we see is that um, he takes away, he prunes that which is bearing fruit. And, and the third thing we see is the utter importance of being in his presence. For God to, he purposes more fruit in your life. For him to produce more fruit, you have to be in his presence. It's incredibly important. This is the only real imperative in this section. If you look at verse 4, you see it. Abide in me and I in you. You can read from 4 to 7. And seven times the word abide shows up in that section. Seven different times. Abide in me and I in you. The whole process is contingent about us being connected to Jesus. It's a story about a mouse and an elephant that one day walked across a bridge. And as they, they walked, you can imagine with every step, the bridge shook. The bridge moved. It made sound. It was thunderous with every step. And they got to the other side of the ravine that they had just crossed. The, the mouse looks up at the elephant and says, boy, we shook the mess out of that bridge, right? Moss had nothing to do with the shaking of the bridge that day, in case you didn't get it, all right? <laughs> the elephant is the one who's responsible for the shaking of the bridge. But I think oftentimes this is how we walk. This is how we talk to God. So much that, you know, crossing troubled waters or enduring long distances, we may be tempted with the mouse to look to, to God and say, God, we sure shook that bridge, didn't we? Folks, we must not lose sight of the power that exists in the presence of God. Any bridge that shakes in our life after we've walked over it has nothing to do with how heavy our feet are, Right? It has everything to do with how connected we are to the power of God. How connected we are to the vine. He is the one who is working in us to produce what he wants from us, right? And one of the greatest lies that we can tell ourselves is that all of this fruit is going to come, that we are bearing on our branch is going to come by our power. And I think for any of you who maybe serve in ministry, for any of you who, who really have a heart to embrace this and live missionally, whether it's at work or in your neighborhood or wherever, and you want to see God do something in your life, through your life, it's not going to be because of, how, of what you bring to the table. It's just not. And I say this to a room full of incredibly intelligent, bright, gifted, blessed people. 
It's not going to be because of what you bring to the table. It is going to be the direct result of how connected you are to the vine. God is producing fruit in us, but it's not produced by us. This concept is amazing. It's truly amazing because what it means right off the bat is that every single person, regardless of your education, regardless of your background, regardless of where you come or where you are right now, every single one of us can participate in God's global mandate to glorify him throughout this world by making much of him and producing disciples all around wherever we go, sharing his goodness, telling of his greatness. We don't have to bring anything to the table. But we do have to be connected to him. He purposes in your life to bear much fruit. Now, this is an awesome concept. I love this idea, and I'll just close with this real quick, because I think it might even go against human nature to some degree. Because I think human nature tends to say, where we offend, where we hurt, we avoid. Right? And you can see this, I mean, you can see this at the school. Right? You can see somebody who knows a student that maybe they did something wrong. And let's say Mr. B's job is to really kind of shepherd hearts and, and help with discipline and some of those things in the school. And they know if they did something wrong and they've been busted, they avoid that man. All right? Like they avoid him like the plague. Right? It's the same thing in my house. Like just even yesterday, two, two. she's two people. She's not, not even two yet. All right? And she's running around with the diaper. I mean, she just looks ridiculous. I mean, she's cute. She's super cute. But if she really saw herself, she'd be like, it's ridiculous, right? But she's eating something she knows she shouldn't be eating. She, sees, she makes eye contact with me, and she sees that I'm going to come and remove from her hand that which is disgracing her, okay? She doesn't know it. And as she sees me, she knows what's going to happen, and her response is to turn and to run, right? <laughs> like saggy diaper and all, just running down the hallway. Because she's offended me. And so she wants to now avoid me. Folks, this is not, this is not the recipe for fruit bearing when it comes to God. This is the awesome thing about our God. Is that when we offend him, and to be sure we all have, we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. But where we sin, God says, don't avoid me. In fact, I will come to you. I will draw close to you. You draw close to me. You remain. You abide in me. Even when you mess up, and we all will this week. Every single one of us. This is the gospel of grace, the good news of the Bible. That where we offend we can draw close to God and he will draw close to us. When we abide in him, what does he say? His life will pour into us. His power will pour into us and he will abide in us. This is a scandalous, scandalous truth to be sure. Very, very, very scandalous. God draws near to us. He engrafts us into the vine so that we can produce fruit for him. 
I think a great example of this is Peter, right? Peter, and Jesus is he's speaking these words to Jesus, telling him how important it is, or sorry, Jesus is speaking these words to Peter, telling him how important it is for him to remain, to abide in him. And we know just in a few, less than a day, Peter, the man who's going to chop off a dude's ear so he doesn't take his servant, this guy who's blazing with passion for his Savior, loves Jesus, is going to abandon him, turn his back on him, deny him over and over and over again before he's murdered. He's going to completely betray Jesus. But then at the end of John, we see this. When Jesus is resurrected and come back to life, Peter and his, his disciples, they're out on the boat and they're fishing. And Jesus, after he's been betrayed and abandoned by these men, is walking on a shore. They, they see him and they, they're fishing, they're catching fish. And, and Jesus says, cast on the other side. And they cast in, they bring in this huge haul. And Peter recognizes and realizes that this man is Jesus. He's come back from the dead. And what does Peter do? If you know the story, Peter, the man who completely, completely betrayed Jesus, completely offended him. What does Peter do? Jumps out of the boat into the water and swims to the shore. Everybody else is hauling in the fish, turning the boat around, doing what you would think they should do, but not Peter. Because although he sinned, Although he offended, he knew that when he reached Jesus, he would be meeting him with open arms. In fact, they had a little barbecue on the beach that morning. Grilled some fish up. That's how God works. So my plea to you this morning is, one, God is purposing in your life, regardless of where you are, more fruit. More fruit. The process, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. There will be persecution. You will wrestle with unbelief. You will have grief. You might have suffering. You may lose people in your life. It's not going to be easy. You will make mistakes. You're going to sin. You're going to offend God in the process. God wants more fruit in your life. And when you recognize that maybe you're not walking totally in step with him, his response to you, he's waiting there with open arms to run to Jesus and to stay in those arms. Abide in him. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for, um, Lord, just as we examine and consider how you relate to us, uh, it, is, it is truly, truly remarkable, Father. Every person here, Lord, is guilty of hearing your word and just having to go in one ear and out the other. Lord, I pray, especially with this text this morning, you would help us to recognize what you have invited us, what you have engrafted us to, Lord, the true vine. Lord, you are on a mission for more fruit. I pray, Lord, that we would participate in that. Lord, and I pray that as we experience your pruning, your cutting back in our lives, Father, Lord, we recognize that it will not always be pleasant. In fact, it will often be painful. Lord, but I pray that the picture that we would have of ourselves is just like what we see with Peter. Lord, that as we see you drawing near to us, Lord, we would not run away from you, Father, but we would run to you. Help us to remain in you, Father. I pray that your word would abide in us. 
Lord, and as we consider what it means to prove your disciples and as we examine our life for fruit, Father, I pray that day by day we would see more of its presence in our life. Help us to be aware of that. We ask these things in your name. Amen.